One of the legendary folks in the, the field of, of motivation and inspirational speaking was, was a man with an interesting name, the name of Zig Ziglar. And many of you probably have known that name. Uh, Zig uh, was well known as an author, as a speaker for a number of years before he went to be home with the Lord, went home to be with the Lord, was at a taught Sunday school in the Dallas area for a number, a number of years. And so it really impacted a whole lot of uh, lives. And one of the things I always appreciate about Zig he just had such a great uh, kind of humor that came across, and he had wonderful uh, stories. Uh, he always talked about his wife as the redhead, and uh, he talked about uh, uh, half-baked biscuits and how to train fleas and pump handles and all these great stories. But what most stood out Zig was his series of one-liners. He just had these memorable statements that would stick with you along the way. And so he, he talked about a lot of folks had the disease of hardening of the attitudes, right? He said it was... It was more dangerous than hardening of the arteries there. Talked about the fact a lot of folks you meet go around with stinking thinking, and uh, they're just uh, stuck in that. And he kind of coined that phrase others have adopted. I always remember him talking about the, 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 the need for a checkup from the neck up, uh, that, that, that most of us could uh, enhance our lives a whole lot if we just uh, spent some time doing a little more checking up uh, from the neck up. Because I think Zig knew something. Zig knew something that isn't just the, the latest inspirational, motivational ploy. It's actually something that has its roots in Scripture. And that is the, the incredible importance of uh, our attitude. In fact, is I, I want to suggest to you uh, that our, one of the most important choices that you and I make on a daily basis is the choice of our attitude. Because our attitude choice affects almost everything in our life. It affects our relationships at home, at work. It affects how we, we feel. It affects uh, how, how we, we go about our work, how we handle problems and take on challenges. And on and on the list goes. Our choice of attitude touches every single area of our life. And that's not just something that's uh, showed up in a self-help book in the past few decades. That's something that has its roots uh, even in scripture itself. As we've been making our way through this book of Philippians and as we look at this, this theme that this permeates Philippians of, of living joyfully, we, we come to chapter 2 and, and we have this example, this, this incredible example of Jesus Christ and the attitude that he had and how, how his attitude choice uh, can be so instrumental for us in choosing to live joyfully. And so I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you. Chapter 2 of the New Testament book of Philippians, whether it's paper or electronic, however you're carrying your uh, copy of the Bible these days. But I, I want us to look, uh, beginning at chapter chapter 2, and really learn some things from Paul's writing. Again, he's writing from prison, and he's writing, and he's talking about, through the example of Christ, the importance of our attitude. And I think in these first 11 verses of chapter 2, he tells us some, some key things about how to choose a joyful attitude, how to choose a joyful attitude. And the first thing that he tells us is, you have to start with the right foundation. You have to start with the right foundation. Look at the first couple verses there in chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one 
mind. Now let, let's pause there. What, what is this, this foundation? This foundation is being united with Christ. It is being in Christ. So if there's any encouragement, in Christ. And what, what he, he, is, he is sharing with us is what he is living out, and we'll see it again and again and again throughout this letter, the, the importance of having the right foundation. And for him, the right foundation is being united by God's grace through faith with Jesus Christ. That becomes the firm foundation upon which everything else in my life, including my capacity to choose a joyful attitude, comes from and flows from. We we know the importance of foundations. We know the importance of foundations. Some of you perhaps have had a house and something's gone wrong with the foundation and you know it shows up. Maybe it doesn't show up immediately, but it shows up eventually, doesn't it? It shows up in the walls. It shows up in the, uh, the roof. It shows up uh, inside. It shows up outside along the way. When there's trouble at the foundation level, there's trouble in the house. When there's trouble on the foundation level of our life, there's trouble in our life. And so he says, start with the right foundation. And that foundation is being in Jesus Christ. Christ. And because of that, he stacks up this series of, of phrases that all kind of flow from having that firm foundation. He talks about the fact that if we are in Jesus Christ, we can have encouragement. Encouragement in Jesus Christ. Now think about this. The encouragement that comes when I know, when I know that I belong to Christ, when I know that, that he is never going to leave me, He's never going to forsake me. When I know that everything that comes into my life, he is sovereign over. When I know that his grace is more than sufficient for any trial, any trouble, any challenge that I'm going to face along the way. When I begin to, to know who I am and what I have in Jesus Christ, it begins to bring such great encouragement to me, an encouragement to be able to face life, an encouragement to be able to choose joy regardless of what's happening around me at any given time. He says there is encouragement because of my being united in Christ. There is a comfort in love, a comfort in love to know that I'm loved, to know that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, to know that regardless of my performance today, because sometimes it's up and sometimes it's down. I am loved. I am valued. I am encapsulated in his love. I am encircled by his arms. There is a security that becomes operational in my life. And when I have that security, it brings comfort. It frees me up to begin to experience more and more joy. A love because of what God did for me in Jesus Christ. There's encouragement. There's comfort. But he also talks about participation and fellowship in the Spirit. Participation, that, that koinonia word we, we looked at earlier in this study, this, this, this community with God's Spirit. That if I 
have the foundation of, of being in Jesus Christ in my life. I am vitally connected in this living, active fellowship, participation with God's Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that if we are in Christ Jesus, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit dwells within my body. And so that I know I have the Spirit present so that there is this, this one who is going to guide me. There's one who's going to remind me of God, the teachings of God's Word. There is this one who is going to empower me to walk in ways that are not only pleasing to God, but release the most joy in my life. I have this participation and fellowship with the Spirit because of the connection with Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about compassion and sympathy. Compassion and sympathy, and all these are just stacked up. Affection and sympathy, compassion and sympathy. I now have the capacity to care for others because I have been cared for in Jesus Christ. I have the capacity to, uh, to, to, to look beyond, to, to engage even with the pain and the struggles of others along the way because of the foundation of Jesus Christ. And, and that becomes even the basis for a supernatural unity. And so he talks about being united with others, that you complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That we have this mutual love for Jesus Christ. There is a harmony that can come into our lives with other believers. Now, now let me quickly say here, sometimes when we hear words like unity and united, we think uniformity. But that, that's not the same thing. There is a difference between unity and uniformity. A difference between unity and uniformity. We don't all have to be exactly alike. And thank God for that, right? Thank God for that. That we have, have a connectedness in Jesus Christ. If we share Jesus Christ, that there is a unity. There is a unity in Christ that does not demand uniformity. So that we can have different tastes and different capacities and different talents and different interests and cheer for different ball teams and have different hobbies and on and on the list goes, you know. We, we can have great diversity, but we have have this supernatural unity, this supernatural unity because we are connected to Jesus Christ. All of this, all of this flows from the foundation, the foundation of being in Jesus Christ. And that's why week by week by week, as, as we share in all the different environments, we want you to know, we want you to know the life that can only be found in Christ Jesus. We want you to know not just uh, religious rules. We want you to have a relationship, a relationship with Jesus Christ that was made possible because of what he did for us, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And now he can extend to me grace and forgiveness. My sin can be forgiven. My present can be empowered. My, my future can be secured as I turn away from sin and self and I turn to him as my forgiver and my rightful leader and Lord. And actually, before you leave this room, we want to make sure you have an opportunity to have that foundation in place that you are in Jesus Christ. And we're going to have some folks that will be glad to talk with you after our service about how you can know that foundation, how you can know the joy of being in Jesus Christ. How do I choose a joyful attitude? It starts with the right 
foundation. If that foundation is not in place, I'm in some sense left to my own capacities and own devices to be able to choose joy, and that's going to get blown around along the way. But building on that foundation, he says, you want a joyful attitude? Start with the right foundation, then make the right choices. Make the right choices. Look look how he begins to unpack this in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He's telling us some things here that that there's some do's or some don'ts. There's some things that I should choose, some things that I shouldn't choose. And we can kind of put that in in a couple of large categories to start with. And the fact is joy is shut out of my life at the point of pride. Joy is being shut out of my life. It's being shut out of your life at the point of my pride. When, When pride wells up, joy is chased away. When I operate more out of, out of uh, pro, sinful pride, it shuts me down from experiencing the flow of the joy that God designed me for along the way. Joy is shut out of my life at the point of my pride. Joy is invited into my life at the point of my humility. At the point of my humility, when I recognize my need, when I recognize rightfully who I am before God. When I recognize my need for others, when I recognize uh, my my strengths and weaknesses, when when I come to grips with that, I am inviting joy into my life. And those two statements kind of are the framework for don't do this and do this. A couple of, of commands that he gives in this section. He first tells us, say no to two things. Say no to these two things. Say no, first of all, to selfish ambition. To say no to selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. It's been said that, that every one of us, by default, particularly in our flesh, is tuned into one radio station, station WIIFM. What's in it for me, right? Is it true? It's true, isn't it? It's true. I do it, you do it. In fact is, my guess is we even operated that way when we were watching the weather this week, didn't we? Because we're watching this cone. What do they call it? The cone of uncertainty, right? Or is that what they call it? The cone or whatever that's called is like, really? That's, that's the best name? Cone of uncertainty? <laughs> but you keep putting it up there, but it's, it's like, okay, it's, good. it's going here. And then it starts to go over here. And, and you know what I found myself doing? First thought, how does that affect me? How does that affect the people I know? Right? Is it going to be better? Is it going to be worse? Right? And that's, that, that's natural. That's natural. What's in it for me? The, the danger comes when we begin to operate that way all the time. It begins to, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And so so I, I want the, 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 this for me. I want this for me. What's in it for me? What can I get out of it? How is it going to benefit me? And when I begin to let that drive my life, the more that drives my life, the more it tends to drive joy out of my life. 
Now, please hear me. There is, I think, such a thing as a holy ambition. There is a holy ambition. A selfish ambition just says, what's in it for me? It's all about me. But about a holy ambition, I think, ask the fact, God, God, what brings God glory? That I want to be rightly ambitious for the things that bring God glory, the things that brings good and benefits others. And, and, and in the world in which we live, very often, if, you, if you're doing things that bring great benefit to others, the, some, the side effect of that, kind of the, the, the result of that is it oftentimes brings uh, great benefits into your life as well. But the holy ambition is about how does this glorify God? How does this benefit others? It doesn't have as its starting point what's in it for me. It says to say no. If you want to experience joy, make the choice to say no to selfish ambition, but also to say no to vain conceit. To say no to vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, this, this vain conceit. If, if selfish ambition says, what's in it for me? Vain conceit asks, who's noticing me? Who's noticing me, right? Who's paying attention to me? How many likes did I get? <laughs> who's responded to that post? And I tell you, this is a challenge in a selfie world, isn't it? <laughs> Why am I sharing this? Does it really become about who's noticing me? Jesus saved some of his harshest condemnation for the Pharisees. And a lot of that condemnation, I think, had to do with just this area. When they prayed, they did it loudly (laughs) on the corner where everybody could hear and Who's noticing me? They wore their tassels in a certain way. They wanted certain positions at the table. It was all about image. Who's noticing me? Jesus said, don't pray for show. Go to your closet. Go to your closet where the Father will notice you. The Father will notice you. Don't operate out of selfish ambition or or, or vain conceit. Because when you do, you cut off the flow of joy into your life. You disconnect yourself from the life that God wants to flow through you. Say no to two things, but he also says say yes to two things. Say yes to two things. Say yes, first of all, to the importance of others. The importance of others. Count others more significant than yourselves. To, to, to think about, it's not just about what's in it for me. It's not just about who know, who's noticing me, but it's about well, this person is important. You know, humility is, is really not about, uh, about putting, putting myself down. Uh, it, it really is about lifting others up, about lifting others up. And, and when I, I'll circle back to this at the, at the end, but sometimes we have this, this misconstrued understanding of humility is just always about like denigrating myself. No. Humility really has more about taking your eyes off of yourself, <laughs> putting them on God, recognizing the importance of others along the way. It, it, is, it, is, it is about 
having that right understanding. Paul writing to the Romans put it this way. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Have, have kind of a sober judgment to, to think, think properly of ourselves. Humility begins with a proper understanding of God and a proper understanding of ourselves as being created in the image of God. Humility is, is not about just keep pushing myself down and the more I denigrate myself, the more humble I am. No, no, no. Humility is about having this big view of this big God, a proper understanding of the greatness of our God. And to begin to look at myself, but to begin to look at other people as these are people who matter. These are people who have value. These are people who are important because they were created in the image of God. Yes, that image has been twisted and distorted in every one of our lives, but they still have this high value because they have been created in the image of God. God. And so I begin to look at people a little bit differently. The greatness of God and the importance of the people that he has created in his image. And so I say yes to the importance of people, but I also say yes to the interest of others. So he goes on to say, not just looking out for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. So I'm not just saying what's in it for me, but I'm saying what, what's in it for someone else? What, what is their perspective? What is their need? What's going on in their life? And it feels so counterintuitive. It feels like if I'm really going to choose joy, I always got to choose me. But actually the reverse is true when I begin to look away from me and look up toward God and look out for the interests of other people, I begin to experience more of the flow of God's joy in my life. So again, if we go back to that Romans passage in Romans 12, Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That, that's just taking into account the interest of others. Can I rejoice with somebody without envying the promotion they got? The trip they got to take, the opportunity they had, the ease of which their life seems to be unfolding. Can I rejoice? Said another way, you know, can I rejoice with the Joneses instead of feeling like I always have to keep up with the Joneses, right? That can I rejoice with those who are rejoicing? But then also, can I come alongside and help carry the weight? to enter into the, the weeping, those who are weeping. That's looking out for the interest of others. Perhaps you've heard that old uh, expression, maybe you even heard it in Sunday school or some setting years and years ago. And someone said, put it this way, you can spell joy, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. Jesus, others, and you, J-O-Y. That's not bad. That's not bad. It's a way of reminding us to, to, to put Christ first and foremost, but to look out not just for our own interest, but also for the interest of others. Maybe it's just coming at it with a question just to say, is there a way for me to serve in this situation? Is there a way for me to serve in this situation? 
Build on the right foundation, being in Jesus Christ. With that foundation, you begin to make the right choices. Say no to some things, selfish ambition, vain conceit. Say yes to some things, the importance of others and the interest of others. But then he turns his attention to, I think, a call to follow the right example. Follow the right Example, And in these next few verses, verses 5 through 11, he, he unfolds this great Christological passage, to use this theological term. This passage just reminds us of, of, of who Jesus is. And so I just want to read these verses kind of all together before we we unpack them in a little more detail. Beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here he is writing about the ultimate example, Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of how we can choose to live. The one who gave up the glories of heaven, who, who just emptied himself, so taking on the form of a servant, uh, walking in obedience all the days of his life, even to the point of death on a cross, so that he could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And out of that humility, God has exalted him. One of the things that Paul is just screaming in these verses is, is Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He was God in the flesh. And you say, well, where, 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 do, you, where do you get that from? Well, the, the language he used was intentional. Remember, Paul's a Pharisee by training. He knew his Old Testament. He, he, he knew it probably better than any of us will ever know it. And so as he's choosing, particularly some of those last words there in verse uh, 10, 11, as he's talking about, about how, how every uh, knee will bow, every tongue will confess, you can't help but think that he had the prophet Isaiah in mind. And through the prophet Isaiah, God spoke these words, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Jesus is God, who chose the pathway of humility to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and yet God will highly God the Father will highly exalt him and he is having that day and it's coming soon where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and so this this wonderful sweeping picture of of who Jesus is but Beyond even that theological level, there's a practical level. And practically, 
Jesus demonstrated for us, he gave us this great model to follow, four aspects of humility. Remember what I said just a little bit ago. Joy is being shut out of my life at the point of my pride. Joy is being invited into my life at the point of my humility. Four aspects of humility that Jesus modeled here. The first is releasing my rights. Releasing my rights. So in verse 6, this one who is fully God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He he released his rights. He had every right to remain in heaven and demand the the, the worship. He had every right to continue to exercise all the prerogatives of being God. And yet he chose. He chose to release his rights to take on human form. Release his rights so that he could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Uh, Please hear this clear distinction though. Releasing my rights is not the same as relinquishing my identity. He never ceased to be God. And and sometimes we think, well, if I'm I'm really going to be humble, then I kind of cease to be me, or I just just become this doormat that everybody walks over, or I just just have kind of no identity of myself. No, Jesus, he always knew who he was. He never once relinquished his identity, but he did choose to release his rights. He did choose to take on uh, the form where he could bless and benefit others. Releasing my rights is allowing God to work through me for the benefit of others. Releasing my rights shows forth in choosing to serve, in choosing to serve. And so in verse 7, he he not only gives up some of those prerogatives of, of heaven, but he takes on the form of a servant. Being in the, born in the likeness of men, himself taking on the form of a servant. When Jesus taught about greatness, he taught about serving. Matthew 20, it shall not be so among you. The world jockeys for position. The world's into what's in it for me and who's noticing me. Not so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What he reminds us of is that true greatness is found in serving. True joy is found in serving. And so Jesus comes and he comes and he releases his rights and he chooses to serve. He chooses to do what is best for uh, another. He chooses to serve. George Washington Carver was considered one of the greatest scientific minds of the 20th century. He, we referenced him several weeks ago when I was talking about the, 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 the bow weevil and the devastation there and how the, the kind of peanut crops uh, came out of that. Well, part of what happened there is the Carver not only talked to folks about crop rotation and, and, and growing peanuts is that all of a sudden they began to grow so many peanuts that they kind of flooded the market, if you will. And there was like, there was, you know, we had all these peanuts that nobody could sell. And so George Washington Carver began to come up with an incredible amount of ways to use the peanut and in so doing served 
humanity in a huge way, provided great income and the way to support families, but also the products ended up helping and blessing so many other folks. Uh, Carver had just a, a great way of talking about that, though, because he, he was a man of prayer. And really, his insights came out of prayer. Carver would routinely get up at 4 a.m. to walk in the woods and to ask God to reveal the mysteries of nature. He kind of focused on Job 12, 7, and 8. Ask the animals and they will teach you. Or the birds of the air and they will teach you. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you. And so Carver literally asked God to reveal the, the mysteries of nature to him. And God did. But Carver had just a wonderful way of talking about it. Here's his own words. I said, Lord, why did you make the universe? The Lord replied, ask for something more in proportion to that little mind of yours. <laughs> then why did you make the earth, Lord, I ask? Your little mind still wants to know far too much, answered God. Well, why did you make man, Lord? Far too much, far too much. Ask again. Explain to me why you made plants, Lord, I ask. Your little mind still wants to know far too much. So meekly I ask, Lord, why did you make the peanut? <laughs> For the modest proportions of your mind, the Lord said, I'll grant you the mystery of the peanut. <laughs> Take it inside, take it inside your laboratory and separate it into water, fats, oils, resins, sugars, starches, and amino acids. Then recombine those under my three laws of compatibility, temperature, and pressure. Then you will know why I made the peanut. And out of that came just untold discoveries of different ways to use the peanut. And so every time you have a PB&J, right, you, you can kind of come to that point of, God, God, how can I serve? With what you have entrusted to me, maybe it's knowledge, maybe it's capacity, maybe it's resources, maybe it's relationships, I, I don't know. But God, well, with what you've entrusted to me, even if it seems peanut size, how can I choose to release my rights? How can I choose to serve? It's the pathway of humility. It's the pathway of joy. But not only choosing to serve, but he also modeled for us obeying my God. Obeying my God. So that he chose not only to be a servant, but to be obedient. Being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And he, he understood that, that joy is connected to obedience, that when I disobey, I'm basically saying, God, I'm smarter than you are. God, I know how to live life more than you know how to live life. And, and when I come to realize that when I align myself in obedience under God, I am not only putting myself in the best position to live, the smartest way to live, but I am also positioning myself to experience joy. Hebrews talks about for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. In the Old Testament, the prophet Samuel was confronting Saul, who figured he knew a better way than God's way. 
And he gave him this kind of classic statement that each of us needs to carry with us. Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. What is Samuel telling us? What is Jesus modeling for us? God's not impressed by big showy sacrifices. He's impressed by what one author called the long obedience in the same direction. That I continue to align my life with him through obedience. Obedience humbles myself under God but it also positions me for God's best and God's joy to flow in and through my life. Obeying my God and then entrusting myself to God. As I obey him, I entrust myself to him. And so he wraps up just this this great section. Therefore, because of what Jesus did, releasing his rights and choosing to serve and obeying. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He, he obeys and he entrusts himself to the Father. His position was to obey. It was the Father's to exalt. And that's not only the model of Jesus, but it's the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The New Testament writers knew this. Those early followers knew this. James put it this way, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's interesting kind of verbs there. Humble yourselves is an active verb. It's active in the Greek. It's something that we are to actively do. Humble yourselves. This is my part in the equation. He will exalt you is a passive verb. It's something that is done to us. It is his prerogative to exalt. My duty, my choice to humble, his prerogative to exalt. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And that's, that's exactly what Jesus did as he came in the flesh. He walked in obedience and he entrusted himself to the Father. If you want to experience his joy, if you want to be able to consistently choose an attitude of joy, choose the pathway of obedience and then leave the results to him. Leave the outcomes to him. Leave the exaltations to him. Now, just to make sure that I haven't miscommunicated, because when I speak about humility, I'm always afraid that somebody's going to walk out of the room and think, this is just about putting myself down, (laughs) just making myself like more and more like worthless. That's not biblical humility. God exalted him as he walked in obedience. It's not about being less than you are. It's about the direction that you're facing. It's about the motivation 
for who you are. I love the way that Philip Brooks writes about this. He put it this way. The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the smallness of your greatness is. When I stand in my full height, all that God's made me to be, thank you for my gift, God. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for everything you made me to be. When I stand that against the name that's above every name, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, that puts things in perspective. That's when genuine humility comes into your life. Humility is not about putting yourself down. Be who God created you to be. Use dependently upon him all the capacities and opportunities that he has entrusted to you. But you do that always against the backdrop of the greatness and the glory of God. You do that in recognition that all that you are comes from him, through him, and is ultimately for him. And when you have that perspective, it helps you to keep yourself in perspective. It helps you to position your to be able to choose to serve, to choose to walk in the pathway of obedience, to choose to release your rights and leave all the exaltation, all the recognition, all the results to him. It's not about putting yourself down. It's about standing up, being all that God's created you to be, but doing that with the mindset of obedience and the mindset of a servant. Maybe the way to end this is just with three words. Three words where joy ultimately begins. And no, those three words are not work is over. It's not dinner is served or the stocks are up. The three words are not even I got it. Whatever it is for you. The three words where joy begins is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. (laughs) Because when I get that right, when I recognize the name that is above every name, the name before whom everyone will eventually bow, when I recognize who he is, then I am free to be who he has created me to be. I'm free to release my rights and choose to serve and obey my God and entrust myself to him. And when I choose to do that on the platform of a relationship with Jesus Christ, when I consistently make the right choices over time because he is Lord, I invite joy into my life regardless of the circumstances that may surround me in the moment. He is Lord. Let's go before him in prayer, please. Oh, Father, how we do just come to exalt you for you are worthy. And Lord, as we let you have your rightful place in our, in our thoughts and our minds and our affections and our energies and efforts, Father, then we align ourselves with your best for our lives. We align ourselves with, with the joy that you designed us for. And so, Father, I just, I pray right now, Lord, that in these few moments that we have remaining in this setting, Father, would you graciously through your Holy Spirit speak to us. Take this word and, and quicken 
awaken it to our hearts and minds. Father, would you just bring to bear the, 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 the pointedness of your Holy Spirit, whether that be conviction or correction, whether that be a challenge or comfort or whatever it is that we most need today, Father, you know. And so, Father, just we just invite you in these, these moments. Would you, would you help us to, to truly align our lives around that central truth that Jesus is Lord. Oh, I'm just going to ask you right now just to keep sitting before him in that posture and that attitude of prayer. And as you do that right now, I'm just going to invite you to, to look at that note-taking.